Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. This episode benefits from the exciting public programming that we do at the School of Labor and Urban Studies. Less than a month into the new mayoralty in the city of New York, we assembled a panel of leading journalists to delineate Eric Adams' vision for the city, especially as it pertains to working people. Only the second black mayor in the city's history Adams is also the son of a housekeeper, a graduate of New York public schools, and for two decades, the member of a municipal union. Our host, historian and emeritus faculty member, Josh Freeman, asked the Assemble reporters what difference this might make in the city's approach to municipal labor relations and more broadly to governing one of the most deeply unequal cities in the nation. We bring you that frank and thoroughgoing discussion. I would like to welcome everyone to today's panel discussion of New York City labor and the new mayor, prospects for workers in a post-pandemic city. Uh, There is much to talk about. Eric Adams has been mayor for less than a month, but he has been a public figure and an elected official for decades now. You know, and he's been the presumptive mayor-elect since last July when he won the Democratic primary election. Yet most New Yorkers know very little about what he believes in or hopes to accomplish outside of public safety. This is especially true in relation to labor issues, which received little attention in the mayoral election and since. Today, we have the opportunity to learn from three of the city's leading journalists about the challenges working people face in New York, what we might expect from an Adams administration, and possible paths forward for the city. Eric Adams is an unusual person to become mayor of New York City at a very unusual and challenging time. Since World War II, most mayors of New York, including Bill de Blasio and Michael Bloomberg, have not grown up in the city. The few who did, like John Lindsay and Robert Wagner, mostly came from well-off backgrounds. By contrast, Eric Adams is a through-and-through working-class New Yorker. He grew up in Queens and Brooklyn. His mother struggled to support his family cleaning other people's homes. As Errol Lewis pointed out, Adams is the first mayor since Abe Bean to attend a public New York City high school. That takes us back a half century. And then, of course, as people mostly do know, he spent two decades in the New York City Police Department and as a member of a municipal union. 
Adrian Adams, the new city council speaker, came from a similar background. Her mother was a corrections officer at Rikers Island. Her father was a unionized truck driver. And she and Eric Adams were actually classmates at Bayside High School, which I went to as well. I, I feel we should fly our flag over City Hall. So we're at a historic moment when the two top leaders of the city are both African-Americans from working class families who grew up in and around and intimately know the world of civil service employment. The challenges New York City faces as Eric Adams begins his mayoralty are extraordinary. COVID-19 hit New York City harder than any place else in the country. The toll in terms of death and disease has been staggering. You know, at the moment, thankfully, things seem to be improving, but we certainly are not out of the woods. And the future course of the pandemic is a huge unknown. Besides its public health impacts, COVID-19 has laid low the New York City economy. The current unemployment rate in New York City is 9.4%, which is twice the national average. With a state eviction moratorium now ended, a massive housing and humanitarian crisis may be upon us. And of course, the last week has tragically brought home the rising toll of gun violence and crime. To help us understand how the Adams administration may address these formidable challenges, we have a very distinguished panel of journalists. Nicole Galinas is a columnist at the New York Post, where she regularly addresses city issues. She's also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. Her analyses and opinion pieces have appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, and other publications. She's the author of the 2011 book, After the Fall, Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington. Jeffrey C. Mays is a reporter on the Metro desk of the New York Times. He has covers politics with a focus on City Hall. And as I'm sure all of you know, he has written extensively about Eric Adams in recent months. Before joining the Times, he was a reporter with DNA Info, and the Star Ledger. Richard Steyer has been editor of The Chief since 1998. He has spent more than three decades working for the paper. Prior to joining The Chief, he was a labor columnist and city hall reporter at the New York Post. He is the author of the 2014 book, Enough Blame to Go Around, The Labor Pains of New York City's Public Employee Unions. Let me begin by asking you, what is Eric Adams' vision for New York City, especially as it pertains to working people? You know, what does he want to accomplish? In a, in a recent column, Nicole pointed out that mayors usually have the most political capital in their first year. You know, what does Adams want to do? And, and, and how would you characterize his, his overall relationship with labor? And, and, and maybe we could start with Nicole and then go to Jeff and then go to Richard and other rounds will, will, will mix things up. So let me hand things over to Nicole to start us. Yeah, good afternoon, Professor Friedman, and, and I'm honored to be participating in the in the panel with my colleagues today. I think Mayor Adams's approach to labor is clearly 
that as he comes into office and as we've seen, unfortunately, demonstrated over the past three and a half weeks, this is an environment of crisis, multiple crises. Adams wakes up in the morning and he has a list of dozens of problems. And at the moment, public sector labor is not one of those things that he considers one of his top crises. He did not really campaign in any way on public sector labor issues. He was once again a winning candidate, not endorsed by the teachers union, considered probably incorrect to be New York City's most powerful public sector labor union. And so I think that he will govern himself and be governed by fiscal pragmatism. The finances of the city dictate that he needs to be tougher with labor than his predecessor, then he will do that. But if the finances of the city do not dictate that, then he will not. And for the moment, the city's finances very temporarily are doing quite well. Wall Street bonuses are up by double digits. This this winter, you know, the state controller has not put out his official report, but we are likely to see a big double digit increase in bonus related taxes this quarter. And so the deficit that the city faces, you know, about three billion dollars projected last November is probably once again going to take care of itself. So I think, of course, this is New York City. Anything can happen. But I think if one were to predict, we will see a budget season in which Adams, again, with multiple problems does not want this to become one of his problems. Jeff? Yeah, thanks for having me too. I appreciate it uh, being here. And I think Nicole is right. I think that, you know, during the campaign, there wasn't a lot of talk about labor. But I think politically speaking and image-wise, as you mentioned in your introduction, Mayor Adams has really tried to associate himself with labor. I can't tell you the number of times I've been out with him and he's talking to municipal employees or during the campaign. And, you know, he would say, I'm one of you, you know, just saw him say it regularly, just saw city employees really appreciate that. I even remember after he won the primary, he was participating in a parade. There were some, you know, a bunch of members from the, the Healthcare uh, Workers Union, 1199. They did not support him, of course, in this election. They supported Maya Wiley. But the mayor was, you know, chatting those folks up. He was, you know, joking with them. He's like, you know, I forgive you, you didn't support me. I'm still one of you. You know, I'm still going to support you. So in terms of image, the type of image he wants to project as a sort of, uh, he's called himself the blue collar mayor. It's very important. It's very powerful because, you know, the city employs, uh, you know, 330,000 people uh, uh, approximately. That's a huge, very influential portion of the city. As we saw during his campaign, those unions were very supportive of him. The city's largest municipal union was supportive of him. 32BJ as well. The hotel workers union was, was also very supportive of him, helped raise money for him as well. So yeah, so I think image-wise, he definitely wants to present himself as a sort of working man. And he definitely has the background to do it, having been in a union and his family have been in a union as well. Thanks. Richard? Jeff is absolutely right about that in terms of Adams describing himself as a blue-collar mayor. There's something of a paradox, though. He retired from the police department as a captain, and captains are among uh, those officers who are referred to as white shirts because that's how you distinguish them from the police officers, the patrol cops. And he is someone who is very much a success story, someone who started out with humble beginnings, 
went into the police department and succeeded, advanced through the ranks, even while being a constant critic of the department and what he saw as police brutality and also as discrimination against black officers on the force. But ultimately, he is still learning as far as labor goes. One of the positions that he did take during the course of the campaign, and he mentioned it on a couple of occasions, once notably right after District Council 37 endorsed him, was that he was going to put EMS workers at parity with other uniformed employees and said he was going to do it in his first day on the job. Well, he's had 27 days in the job yet, and he hasn't done that. It's uh, one of the problems of bargaining that uh, he is going to have to deal with as he tries to navigate the difference between what he was saying on the campaign and what is possible and feasible now that he's in office. Let me follow up, and maybe we could start with you, Richard, and then we could get to the rest of the panel to look specifically at this issue of collective bargaining. Every mayor faces it. There's a calendar that's dictated by the expiration of union contracts. You know, this year, it looks likely that the next round of contracts, the pattern will be set by DC 37 because of the sequence of contract expiration dates. That was a union that was an important endorser of, of, of Mayor Adams. But interestingly, Adams did not support its, its executive director, Henry Garrido, to his very large transition team. So what's going on? What would we, we expect in terms of, of the next round of bargaining? And will the fact that Eric Adams spent two decades as a member of a municipal union Will that color the way he approaches this, do you think? It's hard to say at this point. It's something where currently you have Renee Campion, who had been the labor commissioner under de Blasio for the last couple of years of his administration, carrying on in that job. There's one very good practical reason for it. There's an ongoing arbitration going on with the PBA, the largest police union, and she is a prime participant in that. Uh, That is ultimately leftover business from the last round of bargaining. It's correct that DC 37 is positioned to set a new pattern. It's a question of what he's going to be able to offer to unions, that it's something that, as Nicole indicated, the city is in pretty good fiscal shape right now. It's supposed to end the current fiscal year with a surplus, and the deficits that it's facing in the next two fiscal years are a lot smaller than they had been projected to be even a year ago. Just to follow up a little bit, do you think it it, it, it meant anything that Garrido was not part of the transition team? Uh, that would be between Eric and Henry. I mean, Henry endorsed Eric, and so that it would have seemed logical, but he didn't put him there. Yeah. I can't think of any good reason for it. If Mike Mulgrew was not part of the team, that would make sense simply because mm-hmm. not only had the UFT endorsed Scott Stringer, that to try and help Stringer in early June of last year, it told its members that they should leave Eric off the ballot in addition to Andrew Yang. And the big reason for that was Adams's support of expansion of charter schools. But telling your members that so explicitly at a time when he appeared to be the front runner to capture the nomination. It was a risky political gambit. Obviously, it didn't work out. Yeah, I mean, you know, my conversations with folks from from the DC 37, the municipal union, you know, they still remain optimistic about their working relationship with the mayor. They think they have a lot of common ground. 
One of the things that Mayor Adams has frequently said is that he feels like there's a lot of, a lot of waste and mismanagement and that taxpayers aren't getting their money's worth. A lot of politicians say that. I realize that. But, you know, my conversation with, with folks at DC 37, you know, they like we, we agree with him on some respects. There are, there are things that we can do better to save money so that there is, you know, more funding available for health care or, or, or other issues as well. So there really hasn't been any sort of fight yet between Mayor Adams and, and the municipal union. One thing I do know is that I don't think they will be afraid to push back, you know, during the, the race to become the speaker of the city council is the, the leader of the city council, a couple of unions got together and, and pushed for a candidate that the mayor didn't want. So I think, you know, when it comes time to negotiate their contracts, these unions are not going to be afraid to, to push back on the mayor at all. Nicole? Yeah, I think the new thing that we will see in bargaining this year that we haven't seen in 40 years is the specter of inflation, both in the in the de Blasio years, in the Bloomberg years, with the exception of the large double digit raise that Bloomberg gave to the teachers union in his first term in return for some reforms in the teachers union contract. We've seen an environment of two, two and a half percent raises, basically keeping up with very low annual cost inflation. And so the driver of costs in the city budget hasn't been cash raises for public sector employees. It's mainly been the cost of the health care and the pension benefits, which have gone up multi, multi-fold since Bloomberg took office 20 years ago. So what, what, does, what does Adams do with the issue of inflation will be interesting to see. Back in, in the, the Koch years, the unions often tried to get inflation, automatic inflation, inflation adjustments into the contracts. In other words, if inflation was 8%, they would get an 8% raise on top of some smaller real raise. And the city always successfully resisted that. They did not want the city to get into a, a wage price spiral. So we've kind of gotten through all, the, all of those decades with no inflation adjustments in these labor contracts. But we've seen in the private sector over the past few months, couple large companies, their unions have successfully gotten these inflation codicils in, in these contracts. And so will the labor unions push for automatic inflation adjusters in these contracts? And will the mayor push back on that? will be interesting to see. As for DC 37 and the transition team, I don't think it means very much. I mean, the mayor had so, or the mayor-elect at the time, had so many people on these transition teams. I mean, you were looking at hundreds of people. I think you may be be more important if you were one of the few people left off the team for whatever reason. (laughs) You know, one of the things that that I'm curious about, and and maybe it's too early to tell, is, is, you know, what's going to be the impact of of the mayor's closeness to the uniform unions? You know, he has in, in his you know, four weeks in office has displayed unusual closeness to a couple of the unions, particularly COBA, the Correctional Officers Union, and the PBA, the Policemen's Union that he himself had been a member of. You know, he's invited their leaders to stand beside him at press conferences. He's adopted some of their proposals. There's always a bit of a tension between the uniform unions and the non-uniforms, and they sometimes bargain in separate coalitions. Do you think this is going to be a problem within the labor movement? Is this going to be a source of potential tension? I would say that 
mayors may pick alliances with unions, but it's rare that they are able to give most favored nation treatment to a single union. It's problematic because of longtime links in terms of bargaining that usually you keep stability by giving everybody the same raise, by finding a pattern and then using it. And usually there'll be a marginally better contract for uniform workers as opposed to civilian workers. And the argument is because they're putting their lives on the line. But it's not likely to really take that form that in terms of what's been happening with COBA, Adams has been talking about working conditions and talking about what they have had to endure while also mentioning what prisoners have had to endure. That in some of the media, there was this sense that the officers were either goofing off and taking advantage of unlimited sick leave or that they were just being brutal to inmates. I can't speak to the question of whether there were, in fact, some correction officers abusing unlimited sick leave, but even that I would look at as partly a product of the fact that you would have this disinvestment in Rikers Island and there was suspicion on the part of the unions that de Blasio was doing it to help pave the way for shutting down Rikers. If it's a dysfunctional place that has to be done away with, then people aren't going to look as hard at whether his plan really made sense or whether he got stampeded into it by the council speaker at the time at a point when he was running for re-election. I, I think there is some concern, particularly when you talk to advocates about the mayor's closeness with the you know, Correction Officers Association, for example, you know, the mayor supported a return to using solitary confinement, which, you know, the discussion has been changing how that is used in, in city jails. You know, a group of council members put out a letter really criticizing the mayor over that. And so there's a concern that that sort of closeness, that support could lead to policies that people feel like the city has been trying to examine in a, in a closer way or move away from. You, you talked about the PBA. Uh, another example is, you know, we've had this unfortunate, the shooting deaths of, of the two police officers in Harlem. And in response, the mayor has, you know, put out changes uh, to public safety that he'd like to enact, including, you know, bringing back certain police squads that are sort of plainclothes or semi-plainclothes. Again, there's been a concern about the history of what happens when you have those sort of police squads out there. So I think the, the concern that, that I've heard from a lot of advocates is that sort of his closeness to some of the unions may lead to policies that some people feel are not beneficial for certain portions of the city, specifically minority people who have had a history of negative interactions with police. And of course, certainly most of the jail population consists of people of color as well. The point that I would make in response is that the officers within uh, the city jail system are 85% minority. I think it's roughly 70 or 75% black. And so that you're dealing with a situation in which both the jailed and the jailers come from the same backgrounds, often come from the same neighborhoods. And I think that the argument that Adams would make is that it's not out of coziness with the union. Certainly he's not cozy with the PBA, but that it reflects his own belief in how you keep order within the systems, that in terms of on the streets, it was something where he was campaigning and was arguing that you need safety first and foremost if you're going to have a prosperous functioning city. And 
You have the kind of mayhem that's going on. I mean, in terms of the anti-crime unit, it was disbanded basically a few days after the George Floyd protests began. And it was something where it was largely a political move. There had been a couple of egregious cases in which there seemed to be abuse of authority, excessive force by members of the anti-crime units. But when people talk about shootings, very often they're talking about shootings that took place in the late 1990s with the forerunner of the anti-crime units, the street crime unit. And I think that Adams feels that it could be that disbanding the anti-crime units, which had one of their prime functions being to get guns off the street, it swung the pendulum too far. That one reason for the rise in shootings was that you did not have people who were going out with a specific mission to try and apprehend people and take the guns off the street, that you have to find a balance between the excessive use of stop and frisk that was a hallmark of the Bloomberg years and something where you actually have people doing the job that led to the abuses that were ordered in the form of a quota system, as opposed to simple police smarts in terms of figuring out who it is that may be carrying, as opposed to let me fill my quota and stop some random people of color, because that way I get the numbers in, which was horrible policing. It was stupid policing. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on here. But if, if I would just make a technical point about the corrections officers, there has been much made of the fact that the corrections officers have unlimited sick time. And they have certainly been taking advantage of that unlimited sick time over the past two years. But who gave them the unlimited sick time? This was something that the city government gave as a benefit as part of the collective bargaining process. And so in order to get that back, the city is going to have to give something in collective bargaining in return. If this is an important enough issue for the city government, they are going to have to buy that back somehow in, 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 the, uh, in the contract negotiation process. And I think this points up that the city really locks itself into a lot of unnecessary inflexibility with only focusing on pattern bargaining and never stepping back and looking at the bigger picture. Uh, do we want, do we want to, to encourage the people in the corrections union to come to this job with a different mindset and a different set of skills, which either existing officers could be trained for, or you would attract uh, new people who have those skills so that it is not this constant, the jailer versus the jail dynamic that has gone on there for decades and decades. You know, one of the, one of the constructive things to come out of the, the de Blasio administration's tours of the European jail and prison systems was people from very different backgrounds taking these corrections jobs. And do you change this sort of poisonous environment by having a kind of shakeup like that here? But very hard to do that through the collective bargaining process where you're in this envelope where you can give a certain raise, you can buy back that sick sick uh, time, which will completely destroy your flexibility to do anything else. So all you've got is a contract with tiny little bit of change within that envelope, but no real ch- change in the culture, in, in the discipline, or what corrections officers want to accomplish in this job. Yeah, let me follow that up, because I think, you know, this, this, issue is really important one and 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 the Rikers case you know although it's very particular sort of 
touches on broader issues. You know, I'm thinking of a couple of things here. One is the, the issue that, that we've been talking about, about discipline, which of course was a huge issue during the, the Bloomberg administration in relationship to the schools. So it's not just corrections officers, you know, where, you know, what should be the role of unionism? What's the mayor's power? What should they be? And then, you know, Rikers, a secondary factor has been vaccine, uh, vaccine mandates, you know, and nationally, all across the country, you know, this has been a tremendous flash. Does the government have the right to require its own employees to have vaccines, to wear masks, whatever it might be? Is that right? How's that going to be handled? And, and, and of course, it's not just been public health considerations. I mean, for example, the MTA has not required things that other public agencies have. And they're pretty frank. It's, they say, you know, we, you know, workers won't show up and we won't be able to run the system. Well, I mean, is, is that a legitimate criterion to use here? So any thoughts about how Adams might approach this issue of, you know, these interrelated issues of, you know, how much can the mayor change you know, or, or impose or should impose disciplinary procedures, public health standards, and so forth? In terms of the public health standards, de Blasio was relying on the 1905 Supreme Court decision that found that in a time of a health crisis that public safety, public health outweighs individual freedoms. His argument would be that the only reason that the vaccination numbers went up, particularly among uniformed employees, was because they were facing suspensions and possible firings that left to their own devices. You would have seen less than half of their members getting the vaccine, which was the case at the time that he put the first mandate into effect, which was for teachers and healthcare workers, and later expanded it to uniformed employees. I think with the, with the unions, what they really want to see is any sort of changes to work conditions uh, be subject to bargaining. You know, the pandemic is not over yet. So, you know, what happens if the FDA changes their guidelines and requires more boosters to be considered, you know, fully vaccinated, for example? You know, in my conversations with union leaders, what they want is for, for to be able to go to the table with that and for that to be something that's subject to negotiation. When Mayor Adams was mayor-elect and Mayor de Blasio was dealing with this issue, what he said was that he would, in effect, try to do that, that he would try to sit down and work with unions on some of these issues and, and come to the table with them. So I'm sure he's going to have his chance to do that before long. Yeah, as the acute emergency recedes, which means it may still feel like an emergency at many times, uh, but it's this is this is clearly not something that has come out of the blue like it did two years ago, and we have to grapple with ways of dealing with it that we didn't have to grapple with before. I, I agree with both Jeff and Richard. This is going to be a bargaining issue if if you've got to comply with unknown regimes of vaccines in the future. That is going to be something that the unions will want to be compensated for. Even something like wearing a mask a couple of years ago when people said, why are these uniform employees not wearing the mask? Well, it's not part of the uniform standard. If you were to actually take it through the disciplinary process, uh, you might find an outcome that the, the management side of city government does not want, which is why I think they never really pushed it through that, that process uh, very far. It was always a mandate, but with pretty voluntary compliance of that mandate. So a, a very gray area. In, in Professor Freeman, you brought up the MTA. I know you're a close observer of the, the transit system. And I think that's also a place where what kind of 
raises that the transport transport workers union gets interplay with what kind of raises that city workers get. You know, the MTA contract up next year, not this year, a very interesting scenario where obviously ridership is way down, revenues are way down, that federal aid is going to run out, no indication that the MTA will get another package of federal aid as we go past the midterm elections and go into the presidential election. So, and then of course, the the transit workers are going to also be thinking about inflation. So do we get into a situation where the Transport Workers Union asks for an, an increase in pay, commensurate with inflation, and then you turn around and you say, well, we can't raise the fares commensurate with two or three years worth of inflation. That would be a 20% fare hike on people using the transit system who right now tend to be the lower paid workers. So does this become something where it breaks with the pattern of the city because of these unique circumstances? Or they either benefit from the pattern that Adam sets, or conversely, these contracts run into next year and the city workforce waits and see to see what happens with the MTA. So, and, and of course, that also depends on the gubernatorial election, what, what transpires there. So much beyond just what Adam's, what his personal background is and what he's thinking going forward. Some of this is also outside of his control. It's an interesting point. And of course, it, it is mostly out of the mayor's control, but it does have spillover effects. And, you know, uh, I remember in 1980, when the Transport Workers Union went on strike, the strongest opponent of the strike was Mayor Koch, who famously sort of egged on, you know, commuters walking over the Brooklyn Bridge. And I think one of his main considerations was, would this set a pattern that he would then have to meet with city workers? I I have one final little question about collective bargaining. There are a lot of other things to talk about, but I know some of our our listeners are interested in this. This seems like a small issue, but it actually affects hundreds of thousands of people, which is the city's plan to move its retirees from traditional Medicare to this Medicare Advantage plan. It was something that the unions and the city negotiated, but it's turned out there's been a lot of opposition from retirees. There's a court case, it's stalled, it's become a big public issue. And interestingly, during the campaign, Adams said, hey, wait, that's my retiree plan, you know? And he said, I don't know, maybe this is bait and switch, maybe we should undo this. And then he kind of walked it back. And now there's no public comment. Anyone have any insight if he uh, is going to do anything about this and where he may land on it? I don't know whether he's going to do something, but I think that somebody told him that bait and switch was a glib oversimplification, that basically what you've got here is a situation in which the city and the unions wanted to make a change to produce savings, that from the union standpoint, Every extra dollar that they've got to spend on rising health benefit costs is a dollar that they can't bring back to their members in the form of pay raises. And so that they were willing to do something. The argument that they've made on both sides, and I think that there's something to it, is that the deal that they were able to make is not like other Medicare Advantage plans, that they've tailored it in such a way that benefits are going to be equal to, and in some cases, actually better than what existed under the current city plan that at this point, it's not on hold. It's simply not going to take effect until April 1st. At that point, people, by that point, people will have to have 
decided whether they want to go in or whether they want to stick with their old health plan. And one of the arguments that they've made is people are complaining about co-pays, but there were going to be co-pays under the existing plan as well, simply because costs continue to be prohibitive. Yeah, I think this is also, and I, I agree with everything Richard said, but this is also a place where taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture can be useful. So the city has promised a hundred billion with a B dollars worth of future healthcare retirement benefits to current retirees and future retirees and set very little money aside to pay for those future benefits. So the pensions, at least the pensions are substantially funded. In other words, uh, for some of our students who are watching, the city promises pension benefits. And at the time it makes that promise, it sets aside most of that money to invest and to pay those future pension benefits. With the healthcare benefits, by contrast, it is almost entirely pay as you go. In other words, someone works today, he or she earns those healthcare benefits in retirement today, but the city waits 30 years until those retirement benefits come due. Then it goes and scrounges and finds the money to make that payment. So from a, a city worker's perspective, I am being promised something, but there is no money aside to fund that promise. And unlike the pension benefits, this is not protected by the state constitution. This is simply an issue of bargaining. The people who are bargaining on your behalf are not actually bargaining on your behalf because they're more bargaining from the perspective of the current workforce, not the retiree workforce. So unless and until the city starts to be serious about setting money aside for these benefits as they are accrued, these benefits are always at risk. That risk will grow as the city runs into longer term budget problems. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here in Midtown Manhattan. Unless Midtown Manhattan recovers to what it looked like two and a half years ago, the, the long term tax base of the city is substantially different than it was in 2019. And so, you know, the narrow issues of what does this plan look like? Can I still get my treatment at certain hospitals, which is certainly critical to someone who is retired now, to someone experiencing health issues right now. And these issues need to be addressed, but the longer term issues need to be addressed as well. I think, you know, Mayor Adams has said he's going to examine the issue. He has, I guess, until April when, when the uh, changes will push back to you know, my conversation with some union folks, they, they raised this as a sort of the retirees bringing this up as, as a sort of major issue. People think it's going to go through. It's still unclear if the mayor is going to make any changes. I mean, there's been so much going on right now, especially, you know, with his focus on crime and some of the incidents. So there, there really hasn't been a lot of focus on this. So, you know, I, I think it might be surprising if there is a is a big change to this, uh, given the fact that it's really been obscured by the other issues that the, the mayor has been facing at the moment. But I do know the concern is real. I've heard from a few retirees concerned about their benefits, whether they'd be able to see the same practitioners, you know, any sort of additional payments that they would have to make monthly payments. And we know healthcare is, is often one of the biggest issues. So I think it's, we're gonna have to wait over the next couple of months to see if the mayor chooses to make any sort of changes. Uh, a couple of, of, of you have already mentioned, you know, the, the potential problems that we have come through the pandemic surprisingly well as a city financially. But nonetheless, you know, the city right now has the largest workforce 
in its history. It has a high unemployment rate. It has a very uncertain future. So, you know, it's very unclear where things will be, you know, a year or two or three years from now. How do you think the mayor will approach the budget crunch? I mean, he has already done something a lot of mayors do. He's asked the departments to come up with potential cuts. But, you know, that, that, that's so far, you know, uh, just a kind of paper exercise. Can New York sustain a workforce of its size, you know? And will the mayor's relations with municipal unions color his approach to budgetary issues and, and, and workforce size? Yeah, Jeff, maybe, maybe we could start with you on this one. As we mentioned earlier, we're in this sort of, you know, difficult financial period. We are unsure of how the city is going to rebound. You know, things are okay right now, as, as Nicole mentioned earlier, but that could change. You know, these, the federal money that's keeping the budget afloat right now is not guaranteed beyond a couple of years. And then we could face some very serious issues. Who knows what's going to happen with Wall Street, with real estate? You know, people are working from home. They want hybrid work. You know, how will that affect the value uh, of the city's real estate where a huge portion of uh, our taxes come from. So I think those are, are issues that, that are sort of facing the city that the mayor is going to have to like really walk a really careful line. You know, he's tried to place himself as a sort of technocrat, you know, someone who wants to use technology to improve efficiency. As I said earlier, he's mentioned multiple times that, you know, taxpayers just aren't getting their money's worth, that, you know, there are efficiencies that can be squeezed out of the budget. And so, you know, when he introduces his budget, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what some of those efficiencies are. Certainly with a $100 billion budget, it's going to be really difficult to squeeze massive savings out in that way. But, you know, with the plans he's introduced so far, for example, policing, he's called for police to patrol the subways more in their sector, for example, when there's not an emergency call. There's no discussion about adding new police. What he's talked about is just adding new work details for these officers. So as to sort of stretch their use, he's questioned, you know, police officers standing around, for example, there are too many police officers at parades. Why are there eight police officers standing here when I show up somewhere? They should be out doing this work. But certainly that's not going to be enough to necessarily get the sort of savings that he might need. So I think we still have to wait a bit to see his introductory budget, but certainly there are some big problems looming in the future. Mayors always have to be conscious of budget circumstances. The most labor-friendly mayor prior to Adams who was elected was David Dinkins. And basically within a couple of years of taking office, he was forced to lay off a couple of thousand people, most of them from District Council 37, which astonished people, partly because Dinkins was emotionally invested in those people. DC 37 had been one of his prime endorsers, but he was simply up against it and decided that he had no choice to do that. It wound up influencing DC 37's decision to accept the contract that began with a two-year wage freeze when Rudy Giuliani took office and facing a similar budget crunch, told DC 37 that unless it agreed to those terms, that he could get let go of tens of thousands of employees. I don't think that Stanley Hill, who was the head of DC 37 at the time, thought that it would be that many. But if you were looking at Dinkins had been forced to lay off a couple of thousand, Rudy, who had no mo- emotional investment in those employees and could be argued was indifferent to many of them, 
why wouldn't he go ahead with 8,000 layoffs if you didn't come across? And uh, so that it becomes something where some mayors can use it as a weapon and some mayors are simply forced to do things that they would prefer not to simply because times are so tight. Yeah, I think paradoxically, the time for the mayor to really take a, a, a careful chisel to the budget would be now so that he can avoid having to take an axe to the budget two or three years from now. So he should optimally use these, you know, it's hard to call them good times, but from the perspective of the city budget, this is uh, probably as good as it's going to get for the mayor. And so not just doing the pegs, but just, you know, looking at the Department of Education, for example, de Blasio added tens of thousands of back office administrative workers to the Department of Education. Now, you don't want to see mass scale layoffs, but what, what can be accomplished through attrition to not hiring for vacant positions. Do all of that now, and then you avoid the mass scale layoffs a couple years from now. But I do think, you know, again, the broader picture, this, this is a real inflection point for the city's economy. If you if you go back uh, really to the Wagner days, the city you know made many, many mistakes, which we could talk for hours about from Wagner to Lindsay to Beam. But it did get one thing right, which was that the future of the city would not be millions of blue collar factory jobs. This the city was not going to work as a, as a place for horizontal factories where people drove to their factory job and parked in the parking lot. There were many things that we did to accelerate that process, but in the end, that was going to happen anyway. The, the city's future would be white collar office jobs. And starting with Mayor Wagner, the city had a specific policy of building up the Midtown office districts with new modern skyscrapers, Sixth Avenue corridor, Park Avenue corridor. And this worked. The the future of the city was indeed white collar work and also the immigrant and service work that served all of these new white collar jobs. We started to turn around our population decline in the early 1980s because baby boomers uh, were coming to the city to work in finance, work in advertising, work in fashion. Everybody had to commute to their jobs in Midtown and Lower Manhattan. And as as uh, Professor Friedman brought up, the 1980s transit strike. The striking thing about the 1980 transit strike was that people did not say, you know what, I'll just take this week off from work. I'll just work at home. I'll read a book. They did everything that they possibly could to come into work. They rode bicycles. They put on their sneakers and walked for miles. They took the path train to New Jersey, then took it back to Manhattan. No question of missing even a day of work. And now people have missed two years of working in Midtown Manhattan. They have proven and their employers have proven that they do not need to be in Midtown Manhattan after a certain threshold of financial and other costs. And so the balance of power is different in a way that it has never been different. And that has a lot of implications for the tax base that the city hasn't even started to think about yet. Let, let me pick up on that because I think it raises a broader point. I don't know if, if, if how many people saw an interesting column that Paul Krugman wrote about a week or so ago who pointed out that, you know, New York City has become extremely dependent on the finance industry, obviously so. And, and that, you know, he said there are many good things about that. But as Nicole was just talking about, under the conditions of the pandemic, of course, that's all changed because so many of the workers in that sector don't go into the city. And then all the ripple effects, you know, in retail and service and restaurants and hotels 
disappear. And, 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 and here we are with almost a, a double-digit unemployment rate. Moving forward, coming at, hopefully coming out of a pandemic, what kind of economic development program should the city be pursuing? Is this something Adams has thought much about? You know, and I think this is linked to another issue, the issue of economic inequality. You know, on paper, New York City has unbelievably high economic inequality, partially because we have these super rich people, but we have a lot of poverty too. And you know, a lot of New Yorkers like to feel very superior to the rest of the world. But you know, if you compare us to places like Houston or other Sunbelt cities, our level of inequality is, is much higher. You know, the previous mayor made this a centerpiece. Maybe he did some good things, but you know, he didn't substantially change this. You know? So th this is a long buildup to the question of, you know, how does Adams think about these issues? You know, is inequality an issue for him? Does he have a kind of economic development strategy? Who are the players that he goes to when, he, when he's going to be having to make decisions about this? This is not really something that's come up much publicly so far. I'll, I'll take a stab if, if you like. I, I think it's also striking that the mayor hasn't talked very much about inequality. You know, certainly nothing compared to de Blasio, who ran and won on the tale of two cities. And I think that's due to a couple of factors. I mean, the, 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 no one is disputing that the economy before 2020 was highly imperfect, but it will be a lot more imperfect unless we get back to something resembling 2019 or replace it with something that provides as many jobs. And if, if you think about the jobs that are missing here in Midtown Manhattan, we, we are still missing tens of thousands of our retail jobs, tens of thousands of our restaurant jobs, tens of thousands of our office support jobs. These, these jobs were held by people who commute from the Bronx, commute from Eastern Queens, commute for, from Central Brooklyn. So unless we figure out how to rebuild the tourist economy, rebuild Manhattan's retail economy, and get people back to the office even two or three days a week, these, these temporary job losses become permanent job losses. So what you see is that people who used to work have no choice but to move away from the city if they want to find those, those job opportunities again. And so I think this part of it really fits well into Adams's public safety platform. We will not get people to come back to the offices in Midtown unless they feel safe on the subway. We had a professional woman, Michelle Goh, uh, violently pushed to her death on the subway tracks two weeks ago. That is, of course, a great tragedy in and of itself. But many, many professional women around the tri-state region look at this and say, that could have been me on the subway platform at 940 in the morning in Times Square. If you cannot keep people safe in the middle of the day at the busiest subway station in the city, then where can you keep people safe? So until we settle the public safety issue, and also even when it is not acute violent crime, but having to step over needles around Penn Station to get to work, being uh, heckled and harassed as you walk to work, not wanting to work, walk in Midtown Manhattan after dark. I lived in, I've lived in the city for 23 years, never once worried about walking in Midtown after dark. And now this is a new logistical concern. If I am at the office after five o'clock, do I feel safe walking home? So until the mayor figures out these issues, very, very difficult to have an economic development program. I think the mayor hasn't, Mayor Adams hasn't talked about inequality in the sort of 
necessarily the explicit way that, that Bill de Blasio talked about it as a sort of ideological approach that he took to inequality. You know, what the mayor has said is that there are, and this is why I think, you know, he was able to win election is that there are huge portions of the city, a lot of black and brown people that have not been able to take advantage of the wealth, the opportunities that the city has to offer. And he wants to change that. And I think Nicole is exactly right. The focus has been so much on crime. You know, one of the, one of Mayor's Adam constant terms is that, you know, public safety is the prerequisite to prosperity. So much of the campaign was spent talking about crime and, and dealing with crime. When initially a lot of people thought the mayoral campaign was really gonna be about how does the city recover economically from the pandemic? And because you know, we started seeing some high profile incidents, the focus really shifted to crime. So I think the mayor has some work to do to talk about how he's actually gonna bring those people who've been excluded from the city's economy into the, into the economy. I know broadly, he feels like things such as the educational system being unequal are part of the problem. And that he wants to fix some, uh, some how the educational system works so that people who grow up here in the city can be able to take advantage of the jobs and opportunities there that are available here. So he really speaks about inequality in a sort of more broad way. And then economically speaking, I know, you know we, we've heard that the mayor took some of his first paychecks in, in cryptocurrency uh, or he changed it into cryptocurrency. A lot of people in the crypto industry that I spoke to really saw that as an opportunity for him to attract a new industry here. Crypto is really decentralized. They could do that work from anywhere. But, you know, after the mayor announced that he was going to convert his, his first paycheck, you know, one crypto company announced that they were going to hire, you know, 100 more people to work here in the city. So I think, you know, there's that sort of track of increasing opportunity for people to deal with inequality, also bringing in, you know, sort of new industries like crypto, and in a way that Mayor de Blasio never did, Mayor Adams has said the city needs to lean on its corporate community. He talked about, for his public safety plan, he talked about providing young people with more summer jobs. What he wants to do is go directly to the private industry and, set, and have them help set that program up. When you talk to a lot of people in the business community, they felt Mayor de Blasio did not often lean on them enough or, or seek their expertise and help in dealing with these issues. But, you know, Mayor Adams seems like he's going to be a different type of mayor in respect to that. The points that Jeff and Nicole made are both very much on the mark, that you need this sense of safety in order to get people to start commuting again, that there are advantages to being in the office rather than working at home. But if people are worried about crime and crime caused because there are mentally ill people who are wandering through the subway system or on the streets, then they are going to decide that it's better to lose something and work from home than to put myself at risk that way. Very early, the mayor was chiding Wall Street firms for not having people come back to the office because of the fact that so much of the city's economy depends upon lots of foot traffic in Manhattan, people having meals there, people buying in the stores there. But again, once you get a greater sense of safety than currently exists, 
that's going to be the climate in which people can comfortably return to work. And you can see that economic engine start percolating again. In terms of the education part, I think that he thinks that that's a very important part of economic development in the city and dealing with inequality. And one of the problems and one of the great flaws of the de Blasio administration was that in terms of his first chancellor was someone who was largely a caretaker. His second chancellor was an ideologue. And while he was fighting these battles over elite high schools, that they weren't getting close to fixing the big problem that keeps more black and brown kids from being able to get into those high schools. And that's the poor quality of the middle schools in so many of the poorer neighborhoods of the city. It was one of these things that was problematic in terms of Mike Mulgrew's critique of Adams for favoring charter school expansion. How do you put up with the quality of schools in those neighborhoods and say that we're not going to use charter schools or someone who looks to expand charter schools is antithetical to what this union is supposed to be about? That What are you giving them as an alternative? I just want to thank you all so much, Richard and Nicole and Jeff. I, I learned just so much today and I'm sure the rest of the audience did. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.